My message today is the renaissance of nobility. And in Acts chapter 20, we find Paul, uh, the apostle, giving his farewell speech to the efficient elders. And one of the things that he said was that he did not shun to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Now, the whole counsel of God includes an understanding of our nobility, of the noble calling that God has called each one of you and the high calling. And I would be an unfaithful pastor if I did not tell you of this uh, amazing calling that God has for every single one of you. We are entering into a, a renaissance of nobility as Christians are beginning to rediscover how noble, how aristocratic our calling is. Amen. And we've somehow forgotten that. And I believe that God wants us to begin to understand that we come from a long and a royal lineage and we must rediscover who we are in Christ Jesus. My text for today is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where Peter tells us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, the kingdom of God is just that. It's a kingdom. It is not a democracy. It is not socialism. It is not a dictatorship. It's not even a theocracy. It is a kingdom. And for a kingdom to be a kingdom, you need a sovereign. You need a reigning and ruling monarch. Not just reigning, but a ruling monarch as well. You need subjects. And then you need laws that govern the subjects. And also, you need a country in which your people can live in and which the laws, uh, in which they can be governed. But we forget one thing, that in every kingdom, that you have also the gentry or the noble class because heaven is an aristocracy of sorts. There are going to be many great houses and families in heaven. Uh, in fact, the Lord promised in Scripture two men that they will have a sure and everlasting house. In other words, their, their houses will continue all the way into eternity. And it was promised to King David. And it was also promised to the prophet Samuel, of course, who is the progenitor, uh, progenitor of the prophetic class. Um, the, and I want, to understand, I want you to understand that there is such a, a sense of nobility that God wants to bring us into. Now, there are different expressions of the church in the Bible. The term church or ecclesia is just one of many, right? We are called the body of Christ. We are called the family of God. We are called His building. We are called His field. Uh, but one picture that I would like to share with you today is where Peter describes the church as being a kingdom of priests or more aptly a royal priesthood. And royalty or nobility, which is really one class below royalty, is not something that people talk about nowadays. And for obvious reasons, because we don't have a working model. We don't have a working model. Most uh, nations don't have a sovereign. And even if they do, the king or the queen is just a figurehead. Right? Uh, if you Google the word royalty, all you will find are topics on royalties for singers and royalties for performers and authors. But when you and I think of royalty, I guess we probably would think of the British monarchy because we're part of the commonwealth. But unfortunately, the United Kingdom is no longer united and it's no longer a kingdom. Yet the Bible has a lot to say about the issue of royalty and nobility. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 12, we have a description of King David, or David when he was a lad, he was not a king yet. And it says that he was ruddy, bright eyes, and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The prophet Samuel is summoned to the house of Jesse by the Holy Spirit. And one of his sons would be the next king of Israel. All the sons of Jesse were paraded before the prophet and they're all rejected. Samuel is alerted to the fact that 
Uh, Jesse has one more son, so they wait for him to come in. And the moment David is, walks into the presence of Samuel, the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to the, Samuel the prophet, that's my boy. He's the one. You know, when the first son, Eliab, walked into the, um, the, 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 the presence of the prophet, he was a hunk of a man, man. He must have been a very uh, stunning physical uh, appearance because when the prophet saw the guy, he said, man, this must be the king of Israel. He must have had broad shoulders, taller than anybody else, and he must have had the sizzling good looks, all right? And the Lord corrects this prophet, and the Lord says, I do not look at a man. In, the in fact, when God was choosing the next king of Israel, he wasn't looking at the most handsome, the strongest, or the wisest, or the... He was looking for the guy with the biggest heart, and that was King that was David, amen. And interestingly, David's countenance is described for us here. He was ruddy, good-looking, and bright. And the reason for that is what David was experiencing on the inside of him is now being manifested or reflected in, a very, in his very countenance. And I wonder how, when we stand before God each day, how do we actually present ourselves before Him? What is our countenance like when He beholds us? Um, I assure you that if you've been faithful in the secret place, it's going to be reflected in your countenance. Amen. There will come a day that what's on the inside of us will be clearly seen by all. To a certain degree, you know, we can all uh, conceal our spirituality or the lack of it. That's why we wear masks to church. <laughs> uh, spiritual masks. And, uh, but not in heaven, right? Your neglect in the secret place is going to show. And I'll tell you this, my friends, I've watched this. I've been in ministry 31 years, and I, I've seen this, right? When a man or woman stands on the pulpit, and when they start praying, you will know that if they've been with Jesus or not. It's very obvious. And I want to encourage you, man, to spend time with God, amen? Your neglect in the secret place is going to show one way or another. Now, David, of course, was born to be king, and he was destined to be a king, and but it wasn't an automatic thing, right? Uh, remember, a monarch, a monarch is a calling, not a commission, that's a, for an interesting fact is that the, the, the monarchy, whether you're a king or queen in the British monarchy, uh, you're not appointed by the prime minister, you're anointed by the archbishop. Why? Because it's not a commission, it's an appoint, it's a, it's a calling, hallelujah. It's an anointing. Now, there are many references of kings in the Bible, hundreds of which are in the first seven books of the Bible from Genesis all the way to the book of Judges, and every single reference had to do with the pagan king. Pagan king, right? Israel had no king because the Lord God was a king. And in the last five references of kings in the book of Judges, each of them mentioned the word king in this context. It goes like this, right? In those days, there were no kings in Israel. In other words, God was, what God was doing was setting Israel up for the next phase of her progression. They were about to enter into the era of kings. And it all begins in 1 Samuel chapter 2 uh, with a barren woman called Hannah. And I'll tell you, my friends, that God so often finds a woman who is in great desperation and births something out of her womb, hallelujah, spiritually uh, and physically sometimes. You know, this woman was so desperate for her son that she, there was nothing she wouldn't do. And she said, "If God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And God was waiting for her to say that. And the result was Samuel was born and he grew up to be one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. And when Samuel was born under the unction of the Holy Spirit, Hannah sang a song to the Lord, hallelujah. And in the song, she said, 
God would give strength to a king. That is very unusual because at that time, Israel did not have a king. So Hannah was prophetically predicting the future. Hallelujah. And Samuel was a great man in the sight of God. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a judge. He was a deliverer. But he was also kingmaker. And he was responsible for installing the first two kings of Israel, Saul, who was a, a painful disaster, and David, uh, Israel's finest and greatest king. Now, if you recall, the people came to Samuel one day and demanded a king, and the matter, of course, displeased him, and he went to the Lord, and the Lord says, it's not about you, Sam, it's, they, they are the, rejecting me from being king over them, but God says, give them a king anyway. And Samuel understood a transition was taking place, and the season for kings had come, and it was irreversible. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 25, watch this in the first part of the verse, it says, Samuel explained to them, the, the people, the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it before the Lord. Do you know why the people wanted a king? They wanted a king because they got tired of fighting. You got to remember that up to this point, Israel had a volunteer army. Every time there was an existential threat, they would blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, and the, the people would rise up a volunteer army and go out into battle and God always gave them the victory. But they didn't want to fight anymore. They got a bit sloppy and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. We want to have a professional army and we will pay taxes to, to support the army because we don't want to fight anymore. And may the church of Jesus Christ never fall into that rut. And so they, of course, they wanted a king to fight their battles. They wanted a professional army to fight their battles. And, uh, and uh, they lost something of the essence of warfare in Israel. And may the Lord just deliver us from that. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, um, Samuel had the responsibility of installing the, first, the kings of Israel. And because of that, he wrote a book on the behavior of royalty. I wish we had the uh, book with us. It must have been quite a book, right? But I think it's important for us to rediscover uh, the truths of royalty because there's something very noble in our new birth, amen? The moment we're born again, we're adopted into a royal family. We become the adopted children of a royal dynasty. And the truth is, we have not fully understood the, uh, our, our pedigree, right? Because it's wanting to be adopted. It's another thing to be confirmed in that adoption. Many are called, but not many are chosen. And there is a probationary period that we all have to go through. <clears throat> and the testing is to see if you're worthy of the call. You know, many years ago, there was a funny movie that was screened. It was called Princess Diaries, uh, starring Anne Hathaway and uh, Julie Andrews. I don't know if you watched that show, but it's a chick flick, all right? It's a hilarious movie of this clumsy teenager who finds out that she is the heir to a throne of a foreign country, and her grandmother is the queen, and the grandmother had to teach her everything about becoming a royal. And the grandmother, of course, was extra patient, extra gentle because she was so uncouth, undignified, and clumsy. But she had the right heart. That's the important thing. She had the right heart. And in the end, she becomes the princess that she was meant to be. Now, isn't that the same with us? The Holy Spirit is so patient with us, so long-suffering, even in our disobedience sometimes, even in our ignorance. Why? Because He sees our heart, and if He knows that we have the right heart, He will pull us through. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, I, what I've done is I've sought to compile a list of what a, a few things that I think constitutes royalty, right? And obviously, this is not a, not a complete list, but here goes, right? Number one, number one, are you guys ready? The way that they carry themselves. Several years ago, I had the privilege of hosting one of the ambassadors of Israel 
here in Singapore, uh, Elmira Anon, and we, of course we've had been friends with the Five Pass uh, Ambassadors. We hosted her, her for tea in our premises and we presented her with a little gift as a way of saying welcome to Singapore. And when she opened the gift, she was visibly overwhelmed. And she said, I've only received something like this once from a king. And she told us it was King Hussein from Jordan. And up to that point in her life, she said, I've never met a royal before. But she said, when I met this man, she said, I knew, I saw him as the most regal person that I've ever met in my life. So I asked her, I said, what was it that it was in him that you saw this royalty that constitutes royalty? Was it in the way he dressed? Was it in the way he spoke? Was it in the, what was it that distinguishes a person who has pedigree and blue blood in them, right? And the ambassador said this. She said, when you see someone who has royalty, she said, Pastor, you just know. You just know. And we have a word for that in the Bible. It's called stature. <laughs> stature. And stature is something you have or you don't have, but it's something that we can all grow into. Amen. If you ever met my spiritual father, Brother Bailey, I'm telling you this, you are going to be awed. He is a man of great stature, a great a man full of the Holy Spirit. And you would recognize what stature is straight away when you met Brother Bailey or Reinhard Bonke. Every time I meet Reinhard, I'm, I'm awed by the, his, the, the presence of God in his life. He carries stature, amen. I remember the first time I met Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, and when I shook his hands and he, he stared into my eyes, I could feel the, the stature that man carries such an amazing nobility, hallelujah. Many years ago, we had a Ugandan pastor who was a preacher in our church, and you know, I was very impressed by his behavior and the way he carried himself. So at lunch, I asked him, I said, but is there any chance that you have some royal blood in your, in your family? And he smiled and he says, my mother was a princess, hallelujah. Come on, nobility it, it behaves in a different way from others. If you recall the story of Gideon, Gideon was the least in his family. The family was the least in the clan. The clan was the least in the tribe. He was loser and he was, a, he was the least of all, right? He was a poor, sad, sad fellow, all right? And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and the angel of the Lord says, thou mighty man of valor. I love that. That's how heaven saw him. That's how heaven saw him. Amen. Gideon goes from the presence of the angel, fulfills his destiny and becomes a mighty deliverer of Israel. He destroys the Midianite army and then captures the two kings of Midian. Now watch them. Watch this. Their names were Zebar and Zelmona. And then before Gideon kills them, he asked them, he says, you remember when you slaughtered the men at Tabor, a city in, in Israel? He said, what kind of people? Because they were my family. You killed my family in the city of Tabor. What kind of, a men, were, what kind of men were they? And they said this, and I love this because this really precipitated this whole message. They said, as you are, so were they. Each one represented, resembled the son of a king. This is Judges chapter 8 and verse 18. I love this. Come on. I don't know what those two Midianite kings saw in those men of Tabor whom they killed, but they saw something unusual. They saw royalty in those men. They, they must have behaved in such a regal way and perhaps in the way that they actually died that they died with such courage and dignity that befits royalty. But I'm telling you this, this is my prayer for Cornerstone, that God will raise up such nobility here in this house. Amen. And of course, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is the epitome of nobility and royalty. In Him we find true royalty. Amen. His magnanimity, His compassion, His fearlessness, His love, 
We see him lovingly forgive a woman caught in adultery. Hallelujah. On one occasion when several guards came to arrest him, they returned empty-handed and, and when asked why, they said, no one ever spoke like him. Hallelujah. Man, they saw his kingliness. Amen. And they knew he wasn't like any other man. Come on. Point number two is the way they behave. Queen Victoria, this is in the 1800s, was once at a diplomatic uh, reception in London. The guest of honor was an African chieftain, and everything was going well until the end when the finger bowls were served, and the chieftain had never seen a finger bowl, and he was not breathed on the protocol. So he took the finger bowl and drank from it, and the 500 guests that were present, there was a breathless silence, and everybody, everybody was horrified, all right? And Queen Victoria... Queen Victoria took her finger bowl, lifted it up, and drank from it. And in the next few moments, all 500 guests drank from their finger bowls. The Queen's actions saved the guests, her guests from um, monumental embarrassment. And I tell you this, my friend, that is true nobility. That is true nobility. Nobility cannot be imparted by the laying out of hands. The character of nobility is built day by day, decision after decision, and, and usually in the midst of great adversity and contradiction. And we see it in the life of David again and again. We read of David's great acts of nobility. If you remember when he became king of all of Israel, one of the things that he did was inquire of the house of Saul that he may show kindness to the descendants of Saul. Saul was a man who for the most part of his life was trying to kill David. And when David becomes king, one of the first things he does is inquires how he may show enemy to the descendants of his, uh, to show kindness to the descendants of his enemy. And you know, a king is ultimately known for his acts of kindness, his magnanimity, not just to his friends, but also to his enemies. Come on, amen. Again, it was the same with Solomon in 1 Chronicle chapter 29 and verse 25. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed to him such royal majesty. Come on, my friends. As he had not been on any king before him in Israel. No king was as regal. No king was as majestic as King Solomon. And you know, in 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon to ask hard questions, to test him and his wisdom, the Bible says that Solomon gave her according to royal generosity. What is royal generosity? It's generosity that does not give according to need, but according to nature. <laughs> I love that, according to nature. And this is, you know, this, I've been a recipient of radical generosity that has caused seasons of breakthrough in my life. And we've all had that. Suddenly we are shown great mercy and great compassion and great love. And sometimes financially, somebody blesses us and it breaks us through. And we experience these moments of breakthrough. Amen. And this is what the church needs in these last days more than ever. Royal generosity. Amen. And Solomon, of course, you know, had such a generous disposition of heart. And not only did he give with royal generosity, the Bible says that he had a largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Whatever he did, he did with such lagasse. I think that's the French word, meaning uh, just, just with great royalty. Amen. You know, nobility is also seen in a community of people called the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, we read that Paul and Silas arrived in Berea. And they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and the Jews that were described as being more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. The word fair-minded is better translated noble, or means high in rank or generous. How were they noble? 
they heard the word of God, they received it with all readiness, searched the scriptures to find out whether these things were so. And, and, and according to scripture, this is nobility. And it can be us. We can be like the Bereans. We can be like the Bereans. Amen. I believe that God wants to, to teach us principles of royalty here in this church and nobility as well. Number three, it's in the way they dress. The way they dress. I was speaking in a conference in Brunei many years ago. There was another speaker. It was a Filipino pastor. Uh, we were staying in one hotel, but the Filipino pastor was staying with the ambassador of his country who apparently was acquainted with him. And he told me this amazing story that changed my thoughts about dressing. The ambassador was invited, to, invited him to join her for dinner that evening. And uh, he said that when dinner time came, as he came out of his room, he was just wearing a, a, a T-shirt and a pair of jeans. As he opened the door, he saw the ambassador walk out of her room and she was dressed in a beautiful evening uh, gown. And immediately he went back in this room, he changed to a nice dress shirt and wore a nice pan, pair of pants and then went down and he expected to see guests uh, in, the, uh, in the dining hall. But when he went there, the dining table was only uh, prepared for two people. And when he was a bit puzzled and he said to the ambassador, aren't you having guests this evening? She said, why would you think so? She says, because you are dressed in formal attire. And she said, young man, I am the ambassador of my country. And the moment I step out of my room, I'm a representative of my people. Come on. I tell you, that did something in my... When I heard that, that story, I said, my goodness, Lord, I want to be an ambassador, Lord. I want to represent my people in the best way. I want to represent you. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, people form opinions of you by the way you dress, whether you like it or not. My spiritual father, Brother Bailey, was always immaculately dressed in a suit. You will never catch him wearing anything else. One time we went to, brought him to Sentosa and he appeared in a suit. <laughs> oh dear. So I asked Brother Bailey one time, I said, why did you dress like this? Was it your, is it your upbringing or is it the fact that you are British? And he said, I dress like this because you never know whom you're going to meet during the day. So I quoted the scripture about how God looks at, doesn't look at the externals, He looks at the heart. He says to me, yes, God doesn't look at the externals, but people do. And the first impressions you make on people are the most important. It can open doors and it can close doors. You know, when we travel today, we book our tickets online. We book our seats online and reserve our seats online. But in the past, many years ago, you had to line up you got to go early to the airport, check in, line up, and then they will assign you seats in the aeroplane. And Brother Bailey once told me this. He said, try putting on a jacket and see how differently people treat you. So I said, I'm going to test this. And I put on a jacket. Guess what? They upgraded me to business class. And every time I put on a jacket, man, I was in first in line for, for an upgrade. And I don't know how many times I, had been, I was upgraded from economy to business class. Our dressing, my friends, is a sign of order in our lives. And I tell you, an unkempt, disheveled, and poor appearance is symptomatic of a, of a confused lifestyle. And I want to just say this to you, my friends. Sometimes I, I'm grieved by people that come in shorts and slip us in the house of God. I take umbrage. <laughs> this is the house of God. And I believe that there has to be a respect. There has to be a protocol. You're not, sometimes I see people sashay into the presence of God with slippers and just a t-shirt and shorts. And I thought to myself, they don't respect the presence of God. And you ought to. 
In Cornerstone, now we are not going to stop you from coming in, but I'll tell you this, if you likely esteem God, He will likely esteem you. He will, if you, the Prime Minister calls you tomorrow to the Istana, come on, you will dress up, don't you? And we need to be honorable when we come into the presence. I'm not asking you to, to dress up in the, uh, you know, with a suit and a tie. No, no, no. But I'm asking you to be well-groomed, hallelujah. Because I believe that a, the, the dressing is a sign of order in our lives. Come on, my friends. Come on. My, we, I, I totally understand casual wear is appropriate for today's world. But there's a big difference between casual and catastrophic. <laughs> If you're a man and you're a poor dresser, ask your wife to help you. Come on. You don't have to be dressed like the cover of GQ magazine or Esquire magazine. But you don't have to be, don't have to look like something that the cat, cat dragged in. Sorry. Hallelujah. If you're a woman, I don't ask your husband. Hallelujah. You know, just don't be an eyesore. Amen. I, I, a woman wanted to buy a yellow dress. The husband says, you really want to? She said, yes. And the husband says, well, if you want to buy a yellow dress, that's fine with me. If you want to look like a banana, what can I do? <laughs> okay, people are people. They see the externals and they make judgments, right? When you see God on the throne, you don't see him wearing a pair of jeans, man. He's clothed with glory and pure linen and glory and honor. Amen. When the, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord uh, in the vision of God in Isaiah 6, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just the hem of his garments filled the temple. It was such a fine garment. I'll tell you this, God is a snappy dresser. Amen. He doesn't wear army fatigues. He's clothed with glory and beauty. Hallelujah. And if you go over to the book of Revelations, you'll find 24 elders sitting on 24 golden thrones. They don't sit on plastic chairs. Let me tell you this. And they don't have, uh, and on their heads are golden crowns. They don't have baseball caps on their heads. Amen. Woo! Hallelujah. And I want to encourage you, my friends. I want to encourage you to, to, to learn how to dress up. We have a member of our church who, of course, is the editor of Vogue magazine. And I, man, I'm just two minds thinking to invite him to come and share with us how to be groomed. Hallelujah. Especially guys in this church, man. We, we, you guys need some help. Amen. Uh, just a cursory glance of the Bible, you will find that uh, when God's people are often described, they're often described in the clothings they have on, right? Every virtue is a garment. And I want to encourage you, every morning, you know, I put on the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, amen? Every morning, I put on the garments of thanksgiving. Every morning, I put on the garments of humility. Every morning, I put on tender mercy. I put on kindness, amen? These are garments that we need to clothe ourselves with, and these are the royal garments, and it constitutes our royalty, amen? So I want to encourage you to, to take this seriously, a bit more seriously, amen? Really, I'm telling you this, people will treat you different. Hallelujah. Amen. All right, before, and I'll close with this, it's the way that they speak. Psalm 45 is a beautiful psalm that describes royalty more than any other passage in the Bible. And the psalmist is a revelation of the Messiah King, and he's about to recite his composition. And he begins by saying in this verse, You are fairer than the sons of man. Grace is poured out on your lips. Here are two things that describe royalty. Number one, it's the king's countenance. He is, Jesus is fairer than anyone else. Amen. The word fair means beautiful, more pleasant, more comely. And ki the king is described as being more beautiful and more pleasant than anybody who's ever lived on this earth. His eyes shine brighter. His hair, his, stands, his hair is white. He stands head and shoulders over the crowd. He's the beautiful one. Hallelujah. He's the lily of the valleys. He's the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of 10,000. Shakaba. 
Hallelujah. The second description of, of, the, of the king is his speech or the king's speech. And when Jesus speaks, it's full of grace. I, 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 I beg your pardon. I, you know, I'm going to raise, I'm going to talk about another movie. And this is, of course, an old movie called My Fair Lady. And there was a man called Professor Higgins in the story who made a bet uh, with his friend that he could turn an uncouth, flower-selling, cockney commoner of the streets of London and pass her off as a duchess at an upcoming royal ball just by changing the way she spoke. And so for the next few months, he started to teach her, correct the, her, her accent, her, her language. And, um, and then finally the ball comes and um, she is mistaken for royalty. He wins the bet and then he falls in love with her. <laughs> Isn't that what the Holy Spirit has been trying to do, all right? Seeking to change the way we speak to prepare us for the heavenly ball. And we're much, very much like Eliza Doolittle in the show, right? Arrogant, uncouth, ignorant, unkind of our remarks. Very little grace with our words. And we are not ready for the heavenly ball. We are not ready for the heavenly ball. We talk like the world. And in, in a culture loud with verbalized confusion, we become death to our own prattle. We speak evil of rulers. Our language drip with offense. We are hard and bitter. We spew venom on those who disagree against with us. How many pastors have left the ministry because they are under continual criticism they have sustained from their own members. Think about that. But the Holy Spirit has not given up on us. Hallelujah. Amen. And He's determined that we, we learn a new language, the language of grace and honor. And by the way, the language of honor is the native language of the kingdom. Amen. If you travel, sometimes it's very interesting when you're sitting around people at a, you know, a restaurant and, or a cafe. And they start speaking. And immediately when they start speaking, you know which country, you, because you recognize their accent. So when you have a Hong Konger speak English, uh, immediately you recognize that accent. Or if a Thai speaks English, I want fly lice, immediately you, you, you recognize uh, the, the accent, all right? Um, and, uh, and the kingdom of God has a culture and a language. We have our own accent as well. It's a language of honor, amen? And it's easily recognizable. You know, we're all bilingual, right? We all speak the language of honor or the language of dishonor. We all speak the language of heaven or we speak the language of hell. We speak blessings or cursing, right? Now, all of us have, I assume, met someone who has green thumbs uh, or if you're in America, green fingers, right? They can take the most desolate plant and make it blossom, right? And I tell you this, just as people have green thumbs, there are also people with green tongues. When they speak, they can make anything grow. Hallelujah. They can take what is dead and make it come alive by their words. That is the language of honor. And it has the amazing ability to create. Amen. And I tell you this, my friends, in the, in the economy of God, things are transformed by speech. Amen. Whenever Jesus spoke, he did not speak uh, good ideas. He spoke realities. He spoke life. Jesus said, uh, my words are spirit and life. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But when the, words, when the word spoke, it became spirit. Hallelujah. Amen. And so we need to change the way we speak. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 9, we find the river of God. And wherever that river went and whatever it touches came to life. And it's the same with the language of honor. Wherever it's spoken, things grow. It's a creative, it's a creative language. 
You know, I, I, I just, please, when, uh, I, you know, I say this not to, there are people in Cornerstone that have an amazing uh, ministry of consolation. You know, after every sermon that I preach, every time I'm preaching, at the end of it, I, I I'm, immediately I get about four or five uh, SMSs, uh, WhatsApps, from the same group of people that always say, Pastor Young, that was a great sermon. You, I was so encouraged. I was so blessed. And that strengthens me. You know, that sometimes encourages me. And we all need encouragement, don't we? We all need, And there are people with this amazing gift of encouragement, you know. And I, I don't, we cannot just confine it to five people. We have to have the whole church like this. Amen. We have to encourage one another, man. I, I, every time I hear somebody speak, you know, go up to them and say, hey, that was a great word, man. This was a great word. Hallelujah. You, you don't have to overflatter them, but encourage them in the Lord. Somebody leads the worship. Hey, that was a great, that, that was an amazing time in worship. You, you just are so anointed. Hallelujah. You strengthen the hands, hallelujah, to press in for more of God. Come on. Now, don't write to me and say, Pastor Young, that was a great sermon. I don't need that flattery. <laughs> Amen. But, um, but that's the language of honor, okay? And I, I love to be around people that are affirming. Very positive, right? And we all can't stand to be around people that are always critical and um, pulling you down all the time, right? So leaders, let's, let's make a covenant. Let's stop speaking ill of one another. Amen. Parents, stop berating your kids calling them terrible names. One moment of rash speech can last a lifetime. Wives, husbands, speak kindly to one another. You know, the Bible tells husbands, husbands, uh, live with your wives with understanding. Understand them, hallelujah. Pastor, I can't understand them. I know, try to, hallelujah. Amen. Woo, hallelujah. All right, I'm going to close with this. Isaiah 50 and verse 4. It's a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that he, I should know how to speak a word in season to him was weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to, he, to learn. What is the tongue of the learned? It's to know what to say, when to say, uh, and how to say it. It's, it's, it's to know how to give a word in season who is weary. My spiritual father uh, told, us, uh, told me a story one time, and it was, this is one of the most amazing things I've heard. And uh, he, he was going for a meeting. The Holy Spirit said, stay in your room. I want to speak to you. So he told the, the organized, the church, that he was going to come a bit later and he, wanted to, he just needed to hear from the Lord. And he told me this. He said, tell you, and I was in my hotel room. He said, I had a vision of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I saw him come with glory. I saw the church and the earth rise up to meet him and the church coming with glory, hallelujah, in the air. And he said to me, he said, the church on the earth was filled with the same glory as the church coming down from heaven. Come on, that's beautiful. But then he said this to me, and the Lord said to him, after showing him the vision, he said, Brian, it's not just what you say, it's how you say what you say. And he, he looked at me, and I remember Brother Bailey telling me the story, and I was so impacted by it. It's not just what you say, it's how you say what you say. And I want to pray that God would, would just stir your hearts today in this very simple sermon on nobility, that God will teach us the principles of nobility, stature. We can all grow into stature, amen? And the way we, we act, our actions, our behavior, the way we dress, amen? Uh, the way we speak to one another, and all these things uh, show the pedigree in our lives. And I pray that God would raise this community of people to be a noble class, hallelujah, to be a church full of the, the presence of God. So I want to pray for you today. Will you just bow your heads? Father, I thank you 
for everyone who is tuning in to this message. And I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you will encourage them, Lord. And that, Lord, you will, you will remind them again and again of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. That we were not redeemed by perishable things, Lord, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ himself. That God, you've called us to be a noble house. Hallelujah. Lord, you, there is an aristocracy of sorts in heaven. And I pray, God, that we will shoot for the high call of God in Christ Jesus, God. We will not settle, Lord, for that which is a low call. We will not settle, Lord, for the least in our lives. And Lord, we don't want to have the mentality that as long as I get to heaven, oh, hallelujah, that's my goal. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you will remove that mentality from us. And that everyone will start living our lives, God. This is a probationary life. This is a dress room rehearsal for what is to come, Lord. And so I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you'll stir ourselves in our hearts, Lord, and that we will lay a hold of Christ Jesus for which He laid a hold of us, God. And that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise to us, as some count slackness, but it's long-suffering, that none, that not, not willing that any should perish. Hallelujah. So my God, I pray today in Jesus' name, God, that you will establish a royal priesthood here in Cornerstone. A holy people, Lord, a nation full of your glory here in Cornerstone. I bless the people here in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.